Well, folks, I want to be uh, respectful of uh, folks' uh, folks' uh, schedules and time and all. So I uh, appreciate you all coming. Uh, welcome. Uh, we did uh, we did switch the uh, switch the program around a little bit in that we're going to have Alice Ely from uh, the Public Health Council of the Upper Valley prevent, present first, and then after that we'll talk a little bit about uh, the MRC, what we did this year, and very importantly, what we're going to be doing next year. So my name is Wes Miller. I'm the uh, Upper Valley Public Health Emergency Preparedness Coordinator and also the coordinator for the Upper Valley MRC unit. We've got uh, a variety of folks here. We've got, uh, we've got board members. We've got um, some uh, prospective member. We've got some folks here uh, as a result of uh, the uh, CUs in the nursing grant round. So we've got a, a, a neat mixture of folks uh, folks that are here. Maybe if we could just take a moment, just go around the room and just uh, mention your name and uh, how, how you're affiliated or what you're doing here, just so uh, we have a little bit better idea. That would be great. Uh, Brett, want to start with you? Let's see. Uh, I have a private practice of in holistic healthcare in White River, and I'm the uh, health officer of the town of Hartford. Old job. John Law of Norwich, I'm health officer of Norwich as well, and also chair of the um, Upper Valley Reserve Corps. I'm Wendy Walsh, I'm a public health nurse with the Vermont Department of Health, and I sit on the board at the university. Hi, I'm Alice Ely, I'm executive director for the Public Health Council of the Upper Valley, and I'm also on the board for the Medical Reserve Corps. I'm Wendy Hurley, and I have no affiliation with anything medical. <laughs> Yay! But I work, I work for hypotherm, and I'm here for the uh, community. Um, you know, we can uh, volunteer to the community, so I thought I'd check it out. I'm Tony Orkel. I work at the VA hospital as a safety specialist, and I'm here as just a member of the Upper Valley Medical Reserve Board. Well, we have Rogerson, retired OR nurse, who used to work here a little bit, APD, and I'm now just a little volunteer drone for uh, <laughs> MRC. Uh, I'm Christina Hammond um, from Hanover. I'm with the American Red Cross and the MRC and just recently finished my EMT. Right. I'm Kathleen Broly. I'm a nurse practitioner in palliative care and I just like the name of their thing and I thought I'm new to the valley and so I figured let me go see what they're doing. Judy Langhans from Continuing Nursing Education. We're accrediting and live web streaming this um, meeting today, so I'm going to be monitoring my email if anybody has any questions for those that are watching remotely. I'm Deb Hastings, Director of Continuing Nursing Education. I'm here for the contact hours as well. <laughs> I'm Josephine Lawman. I'm an LNA, and uh, I'm I volunteer sometimes in the community. So oh, that's what I'm here. Well, great. Well, appreciate everyone coming. So, um, just a, just a, a couple of quick things. Um, in the unlikely event that uh, we do hear the alarms go off and stuff, if we go out this door and we take a go right, right again, there's an exit door right there. You do need to use the restrooms. Probably the easiest ones are up uh, right in the right in the front of the lobby when you first come in. So, with with that, without any further ado. Um, I'll introduce uh, Alice Healy, who's uh, director of the uh, Public Health Council of the Upper Valley. So, Alice, thank you. I have some accreditation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, sorry. I the, 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 the paperwork. I take it back. We'll put yes, sorry, sorry. Uh, part of our accreditation, we have to announce it, so my apologies. Um, 
And this is also for folks who are um, either viewing us online or this is being re recorded for folks who may be interested in viewing this after the fact. So thank you for joining us here tonight um, for this special nursing grand rounds being presented as part of a medical reserve for meeting. Um, we do welcome our colleagues who are joining us online. The Public Health Council of the Upper Valley is comprised of community leaders and representatives from a diverse group of community sectors working together to create a more healthy, safe, supportive, and vital Upper Valley. The PHC goal is to advance collaboration among Upper Valley organizations as a means to deliver core public health services, establish public health priorities, and mobilize resources to achieve me measurable outcomes. This session will explore the purpose and concepts of the Public Health Council of the Upper Valley. The title of tonight's presentation is Building Public Health Leadership in the Upper Valley. Are we rowing in the same direction? At the conclusion of this presentation, you should be able to describe the purpose of the Public Health Council of the Upper Valley and how it operates, identify the four most critical public health needs of folks in the Upper Valley, and connect with working groups and or other organizations developing strategies and programs to address needs they care about. Um, after the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development here at Dartmouth Hitchcock with a link to an online evaluation. And within two weeks' time, your credit will be posted on your online transcript. Uh, we do appreciate your feedback and um, uh, sincerely hope that you do complete your evaluation. And at this point, is the evaluation tied now to the credit, or is that that's still okay? Okay. Um, <clears throat> if you do want credit, please be sure you have signed in, and you must attend at least eighty percent of the program in order to receive credit. <clears throat> For folks who are viewing online, if you have questions during the presentation, email them to Judy Langhans, who will be monitoring her email, and she will share uh, your questions with the speaker. Um, her email is judith.m, as in May, dot langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Also, for folks who are viewing online, please email Judy within an hour of the completion of this presentation, letting her know that you did participate in the activity and include your name, degree, and zip code. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So, at this time, I'll introduce again our speaker, Alice Ely. Ms. Ely holds a master's degree in public health and is the coordinator of the Public Health Council of the Upper Valley. Please join me in welcoming her this evening. such a uh, <laughs> formal introduction. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Um, so I told Wes that I would come here tonight, and I'm really happy to see some faces that I'm not familiar with. Of course, I'm happy to see the faces I am. <laughs> but I, I look forward to the opportunity to let you know more about what the Public Health Council is, why we are the way we are, because if you've grown up or worked, lived in other parts of the country, you might find it a little odd that we really don't have a public health system in the state of New Hampshire. We have a state division of public <coughs> health services, and then it just sort of goes away unless you happen to live in Manchester or Nashua. So I'll explain a little bit about why we are and how we're different from some of those more formal structures. 
Um, I'll, I'm putting together two different presentations tonight. So sort of in the middle of my presentation, I'm going to throw in a lot of information about the community health needs assessment that has been done here in the Upper Valley in the last couple of years. And then I'm going to get back to how the Public Health Council is using that information to begin to work on the, the priority health issues for the communities that we serve. I apologize, I have a chest cold, and so I'm going to have to clear my throat a few times along the way. So I'm not going to go over the learning objectives again, but um, they are there. State of New Hampshire, as I just described, no formal public health infrastructure in most of the communities of the state. Uh, I worked for the state of New Hampshire from about, um, off and on really, from about to that, uh, 1997 until 2006. So I was part of a couple of different agencies there, both their substance abuse agency and the public health agency. And throughout that whole period of time, there was a great deal of discussion about how to create more capacity to do public health work and, and provide public health leadership on a regional or local level. But there were really never the resources available at the state level to begin to create some sort of an infrastructure lower down the food chain. Um, the bad news is that when 9-11 occurred, um, we were in a state of turmoil in our nation. Um, the silver lining, if you could see it that way, is that the federal government started to pour millions of dollars into state and local governments to build emergency planning and preparedness. Um, there was bioterrorism response, there were all sorts of things in, in place. And what New Hampshire was able to do at that time was to argue that what they really needed to do with those resources was to begin to create this more regional infrastructure. Because without it, we were always going to be looking to Concord, and it was just going to be too far away from the source of any uh, potential difficulties. At the same time, and this is when I was working within the substance abuse world, we were really arguing that the way we supported substance abuse prevention work uh, was also not very efficient. We had small organizations all over the state trying to ask for resources without any real objective way of understanding what those needs were and whether they were actually doing the right work. And so we began to argue from the substance abuse prevention perspective that we needed to regionalize the state and put some of the core capabilities like needs assessment and community coalition development and priority setting at a more regional level and not you know, school by school or little mom and pop organization by another really small organization. So these two um, efforts to create regions across the state started to develop in parallel and actually created two different sets of regions for a while there. Um, and that, when was it? 20 or something along those lines, they finally said, wow, why doesn't public health and substance abuse work together? We're going to put a request for proposals out to the regions. This will give us each region money to do emergency preparedness work, which is what Wes Miller drives for our region. 
and also to do substance abuse prevention work. And we've got a couple of folks that, that are, uh, work very closely with um, Wes, or at least contiguously, who do that kind of work. And, and what we also want for all of these um, regions to do is create a public health advisory council that is going to work very broadly across lots of sectors in the community. It is going to try to create um, a broad base of priorities. Um, they didn't, at least in the beginning, provide a lot of funding for that part of the work, but they said this is what we want to have happen. And eventually they did put those regions together. So the state of New Hampshire has 13 regions. So I just described what's here. Um, this is their map for all of the regions in the state of New Hampshire. So you've got, you know, obviously that's a huge one in the North Country. Carroll County over here is a big one. I, there are 13 of them. And here's the Upper Valley. Um, and so this is, from the perspective of the state of New Hampshire, this is my area of, of accountability and responsibility. But we never like to do exactly what we're told <coughs> here in the Upper Valley region. So recently, the, the Mascoma Valley Health Initiative, which was the organization that hired me, was serving as the host agency for the Public Health Council for a number of years. Just within the last few months, we've actually changed the name legally of the Mascoma Valley Health Initiative to the Public Health Council. So it's all one. There's no more confusion about who's who and who does what. And at the same time, we decided to open our doors to 22 Vermont towns, uh, which was a better reflection of what's actually been happening on the ground for the last few years. We had never said, we will not work with folks from Vermont. It just doesn't work in the Upper Valley region. Um, but this was the first opportunity that we had to sort of formally say, yes, these are the towns that we will also uh, cover with the work that we do. So what do we do? How do we operate? I, I want to get across, um, if nothing else today, I want to really get across the notion that the Public Health Council is a coalition. It's, it's a collaborative. I am the facilitator. I, I do some business work. I call meetings. I try to get people to, to um, work together on things and, and kind of let's get down to brass tacks. Let's figure out exactly what it is we want to do. But I don't run programs. We put out goals and we come up with strategies that our partner organizations say, oh, this is what we can do to move this ball forward. So when I use the analogy of are we rowing in the same direction, it's because the partner organizations, we have municipalities, we have um, healthcare facilities and hospitals and mental health agencies, and um, small community-based organizations that work with people with special needs or other kinds of services. The question is, how can we get all of those people doing things that are moving us forward on any particular set of goals and objectives that we've identified? Um, and so I kind of do some just trying to move people in one direction or another. And often, what I'm doing is making connections between organizations that you might think knew about each other or knew what each other did, but in fact, they really don't. So as a group, we listen to community needs. We do that in a variety of ways. We do it through the, the, the um, 
participants in the programs that are around our table. We do it through collaborating with Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, and this past cycle of a community health needs assessment included five uh, hospitals in our region, so we participate in that process. Um, and we look for a variety of ways with community forums and um, events like this, et cetera, to, to reach out and connect with the folks in our communities to find out what they're most concerned about. We build a shared public health agenda. I'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about the community health needs assessment. Um, we look for ways that people can work together to get things done. How can we use the resources that we have more effectively? One of the things that I've learned about the Upper Valley, and I think it's a little different than, say, a little bit to the south of us in Sullivan County, is we have no shortage of qualified professionals, organizations that do the work that needs to get done, people who care. In many cases, we don't even have a shortage of money to work with. It's, are we putting it in the right places? Are we using it as effectively as we can? Are we closing the gaps between the things that, that, um, that people need in order to support them? Um, and, look, and so that they can actually have uh, a better life. That's the work that we have to do, is make sure people are working together. Only occasionally is it really a question of, oh my gosh, we really just have nothing in, at this point to address um, a community need. But we do. Um, particularly always look to what are the underserved communities that we have um, in our region. And they're here, and I'll show you a little bit more of the data in a couple of minutes about that. <clears throat> our structure is a little odd. Um, the Public Health Council, as I said, is a 501c3 organization, and we have taken on that role of bringing people together, providing that Public Health Advisory Council function. In most of the regions of the state of New Hampshire, the organization that, that um, holds that advisory council role is also the organization that hires the people who are doing the substance abuse and emergency planning work. Um, it's, it's the organization that holds the contract with the state of New Hampshire, and that's where we're different. Dartmouth-Hitchcock actually holds the contract with the state of New Hampshire, and um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Community Health hires the folks that are working on the very specific program areas that they have in that contract, they do not pass any direct state dollars through to me to support the Public Health Council. I do get some of the dollars that come through for program-specific activities when nobody else really wants to do those things, but for the most part, the funding that I get comes from private sources, municipal appropriations, and I do get some money from Dartmouth-Hitchcock Community Health, but it's not out of that contract. I bring that up, one, to like make sure you're awake, because it is a little confusing. Uh, but I also bring it up because I believe that it's actually a benefit for us, because it means that my accountability is to you and the people of our community. My accountability is not a contract document out of Concord, New Hampshire. And I see that happening in a lot of other communities. People are really dashing around trying to do what the state wants them to do, not necessarily what their community thinks is important. And, and I think it's very important here in the Upper Valley that we stay true to what, what our community wants us to focus on. There's a list here of some of the working groups that we have. Uh, I will go into those a little bit more later, but they relate to things like aging and substance abuse, um, oral health, healthy eating and active living, 
We have a lot of priorities. I'm not going to go through all of these. Um, these are, some of them are aspirational priorities. So for example, let's see what I could Increase access to affordable and safe housing. Um, we don't really have a lot of expertise within the Public Health Council. We are not experts on housing. So we never sat down in the very beginning and said, okay, we want a community health improvement plan on housing and here's what we're gonna do. What we said was, we wanna make sure that when there are conversations or when issues come up around housing, we know that this is a conversation we wanna engage in. And if something does happen, we will be at that table. And that's in fact happening. Um, there are others here where we sort of, you know, reduce violent crime. I'm not sure to what extent the Public Health Council has a lot to do with that, but again, we look for opportunities to be a part of anything that relates to a reduction in crime rates. But we do work very actively on things like oral health. Um, we are working on increasing supports for aging in community and, and caring responses to people with behavioral health and substance abuse concerns. And, and some of the other priorities listed here. All of these are listed on our website, so if you really want to go and look and um, see more, you can. So the Community Health Needs Assessment was done in 2015. As I mentioned, five uh, community hospitals participated in this. It was, to perhaps use an overused word, it was unprecedented that so many hospitals would work together to do one Community Health Needs Assessment. These are the hospitals that, that cover a broader region than we cover, and that's a great thing because there are other coalitions that are working in those areas as well. Um, <coughs> each of these hospital service areas has received their own data, you know, a, a report of the data that were only for the um, parts of the survey that relate to their community, but it also gives us a much larger view and I will show you how some of that data compares. Just briefly, there were over 2,000 um, surveys completed as part of this process. These are community members uh, through a variety of sources. There were key community stakeholder surveys. So these are uh, folks that work within agencies and organizations around the region, and there were about 120 of those completed. And this is for that whole five hospital service area. We also completed 14 community discussion groups with very targeted groups of people and reviewed public health, hospital discharge, and other standard data. So there, there's a way to compare what people are saying against what the, um, the external data sources are telling us. And also, this is Greg Norman's edition, the Make Sense Discussions. It's, you know, you tell people about it and, and you you get their sniff test, so to speak. Does that seem right? What doesn't seem right about it? What do you think this is telling us? And I think in, in many ways, what I'm sharing with you tonight has actually been filtered through lots of meetings where this information has been shared previously. And so you start to um, hone in on what's important or what it's telling us and what that might mean. Um, so what did the community say? Uh, the most critical, and this of course shows you um, the data from the four different service areas that were pulled out. So Dartmouth and APD were put together in one, Mount Scutney Valley Regional and New London. Um, mental health and substance abuse issues, you know, flip them over which one came up, number one or two, but uh, clearly those are 
the most important issues in our communities from a variety of perspectives. <coughs> we actually even threw in tobacco use down here. Um, you know, I came to, when I finished my master's degree and I came to New Hampshire, my first job was with the Tobacco Prevention Program down in Concord. And I spent about eight or nine months there. And then I just, I just couldn't do it anymore because I kept saying, how can I spend all my time trying to convince a bunch of teenagers not to smoke cigarettes when their lives are, this is being recorded, right? Their lives are really awful in so many different ways. And you're asking me to think about nothing but their tobacco use. And that's when I left that job and started moving into things that allowed me to look more comprehensively at the world that young people were living in and all of the choices that they were making. Um, but it's finally nice to start seeing that the substance abuse world is, in some cases, starting to say that tobacco use is actually a substance use disorder as well. Anyway, that was just an aside. The next highest priority is affordability of health care, oral health care, and prescriptions. Now, I've also heard it said that this was the first time since before Medicaid Part D was created that the question of, of um, payment of prescription drugs started to show up again as a problem for folks. It hasn't been a problem for a number of years. And here it is again. So um, one of the things that we've done this last year is created this uh, guide to help people pay, find ways to pay for prescription medications. And I have many, many copies here. You are welcome to take them. And if there aren't enough, um, you can contact me to get more. What I want to say about this is it provides a lot of detailed information. And it's really not the kind of thing you just hand to somebody and have them go and manage it on their own. But if you're in a position to provide some advocacy, if you're a caregiver or a care manager, um, this is a, a wonderful tool to use as you're working with an individual who needs help because it, it looks at all the options. It gives you some pathways in terms of decision making. And there's a little a worksheet on the back page where you can make <coughs> notes about what you've agreed would be a good strategy and next steps for that person so that when they leave, it's simple. They know what they're going to do. It was just one of the things we were able to pull together uh, to, to address that need. I know it's not enough, but it's step number one. Um, the next highest priorities had to do with physical activity and um, healthy food needs. Uh, so, and again, across all of the regions, pretty high, highly ranked. And then next on the list were things that we put in a bucket called the social determinants of health. So these are the underlying risk factors that people have for poor health conditions. Um, this is something that in, in my training in public health we've been looking at for a very long time. Um, I think it's a relatively new concept to many of the large health systems that are thinking, oh, you have to go downstream and figure out how to make people healthier at the beginning. Uh, but I'm very happy to see this showing up here and it looks at lots of things around employment and family stress and, again, the housing and transportation issues that I'm sure many of you hear about routinely as you're trying to figure out why people are not taking advantage of the, the great health care services that we have here in the Upper Valley. Um, I think we're getting close to the bottom of this list. Uh, down the next list, 
the next level of priorities is access to care. And then again, some of those support systems around um, transportation, specifically healthcare for seniors, healthcare for uh, primary care access, dental health access, et cetera. Any questions about these um, slides on the priority issues for folks? How often do you do this? It's Actually. done every three years. Yeah. Um, and we do expect to continue doing it um, in the future in the same way, which would be great because you get better data when you do it the same way year after year. There's also some discussion to, about taking deeper dives into pieces of the data in, in the interim. So whether we actually move to collecting data continuously at a smaller level or whether we do it every three years in a big push and then um, have more research in the intervening periods about things we have questions about, I'm not sure what the end result is going to be. It's at least every three years. So one of the things that comes up is health disparities. Now we have some regions, we have a lot of towns in our region that are well above the state average in terms of, of um, median household income. You can see here that a lot of our towns, both New Hampshire and Vermont, are above New Hampshire's median income, and again, Vermont is another $10,000 less. Um, what we want to point out, though, is that if you look at median income, and then you go over here and you look at the percentage of poverty, in some cases it lines up. You would expect the highest median household income to have about the lowest percentage of, of families living in poverty. However, there are a couple of exceptions in here. So for instance, you have like an Enfield with a relatively high median income of 80,000, but then again, it has 14% living um, at 200% of the poverty level. And that um, same difference occurs for like Thetford and even to some degree Orford and a few other towns. So the idea is that we have some high-income communities or high-income groups in our area, and it masks the reality that the health outcome information and the, the social determinants of health income for those pockets of people who are not um, living at the same standard in our communities. And if we were to pull those out, what would we learn about their health outcomes and their social determinants of health. So that's why we have to be particularly careful about looking at health disparities. Um, again, childhood poverty varies dramatically by town, and you can see that um, particularly on the under 200% of the poverty level, um, we definitely got <laughs> of a fair range of folks who are living in that category, um, 26 to 41% uh, in across our region, but it's a big variation. 26 to 41% is a big difference. Um, and income is a significant barrier to accessing health. Now this is Mount Scutney data only. Um, I find clearly the less the income, the, the more people report having difficulty getting health care. I still think it's um, 
not insignificant that nearly 20% at the higher levels are saying we've had some difficulty getting help. So that maybe speaks to a different issue, or maybe you know, that's what we consider our baseline. Um, but I know we have some workforce issues, particularly when it comes to mental health and substance abuse in our region. So sometimes you really just can't. It doesn't matter what you're willing to pay for it. There's nobody there to give it. One of the other things that was interesting is that sometimes the community residents and the key stakeholders um, point to different priorities or different crisis issues within the community. And um, so as you can see, cost of prescription drugs was identified by community members as a really big pressing problem, whereas the um, stakeholders didn't see it quite so much. Access to mental health care really flies off the charts for the stakeholders, but the community members, yeah, 38% said it was um, important, but it's it, um, not as significant. And the perception of why that may be is this idea that the key sto stakeholders in our region are really geared towards dealing with crisis situations. So that's what they, that's what they identify, the things like you can't get certain kinds of care. Whereas our um, community members are probably looking at this more from a, a very practical, pocketbook kind of response. Like, can't pay for my medications. Those, those are the choices that they're dealing with on a daily basis. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Maybe I missed a question. Who are key stakeholders? Key stakeholders generally are um, people who work in organizations, agencies, okay. clinical providers, social services providers, okay. who are actually seeing clients and patients. And so their frame of reference is often that community that they serve. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Um, this slide shows what, what many of us are hoping to see, is that a lot of our residents do see a value in, in working on the social determinants of health. They do understand that there are some underlying factors that affect people's health, and they'd like to see these things uh, addressed in our policies and in our program development. So affordable housing, child care, healthy food, and, and substance abuse, and then of course the public transportation, which is always up there. I'm going to speed up a little bit, but I think that's going to be okay because I'm looking at the clock. Um, <coughs> our friend Paul Coates, who's the uh, recreation director in Lebanon, loves to see this because now he's justified in all the work he's doing to try to build out the uh, Mascoma River Greenway trail, uh, the rail trail project through um, Lebanon that, that folks really do want access uh, to ways to be outdoors and get healthy and get active. Um, and then the question is, who are we leaving behind? Who are the underserved populations? Now this was reported by stakeholders, not community members, but there's a great deal of concern for people who are in need of mental health care and people who are in need of substance abuse, um, the uninsured, underinsured, and lower income populations. Um, all of these community health needs assessments are available on the hospital websites. If you want to see this uh, presentation to get more details later, I'm happy to provide it to anybody. Um, so this is a summary of what Dartmouth-Hitchcock has established as the health priorities. We are working with this same document. There may be some variations in terms of what the Public Health Council decides to put emphasis into. 
Um, but we are working with the same set of priorities. So reducing harm from substance abuse and mental health, looking at new and better ways to do the work that we're doing, um, addressing the needs of frail elders or el any elders in communities. is We need to get better at doing that because that portion of the population is only going to get larger in our community. So if we don't figure it out now, <laughs> in 15 years, we're going to be in real trouble. Um, so what I want to do now is talk for a couple minutes about how we're approaching any of these particular issues. And these are the places where if you're really looking for how you might get involved, I might give you some hints today, and you can come and talk to me later if you want more information. Um, when it comes, for instance, to the priority of alcohol and drug misuse, we have set a series of goals and objectives that we want to work towards over the course of three to five years. Um, and these include these things that are listed here, many of which should not be too much of a surprise. And they relate to um, adolescent use, adult use, different substances, uh, and, and of course these days a, a great deal of emphasis on opioid-related deaths. So how do we go about doing this? Well, we the, all together is the Substance Abuse Coalition that is affiliated with the Public Health Council. So people come to the council and they want to work on this issue, they, they go to that working group. Uh, that group is pulling together lots of partners, developing new strategies and initiatives. They have folks who are working on prevention. Those coalitions are often working at the community level to create coalitions that bring parents together, bring schools together, and other folks to figure out what to do at that smaller community level, maybe in many cases uh, school district-wide. We have training opportunities that we promote around suicide prevention and mental health first aid for youth. Um, we also have somebody who's focusing on the continuum of care, which is primarily around early problem, early problem identification, early intervention, and treatment, and is bringing a wide range of people together to figure out how to work more um, collaboratively. I keep saying that over and over again. Um, it actually really makes a difference. If the treatment provider gets to know the recovery coach, or gets to know the student assistance professional in the high school in a new way because then they, they can work for the good of the clients and make sure that they're getting their needs met instead of just saying, well, this is what I do, goodbye, go find whatever else you need. Um, our, this altogether group is going to be putting out a marijuana media campaign soon we are seeing more and more confusion among people about the dangers associated with marijuana use, in, part, in large part because of the discussions around medical marijuana and, um, and legalization. And so young people and, and parents are feeling like, well, what's the big deal? What's the problem? When in fact, uh, there really is a very significant impact on, on cognitive abilities if people start smoking marijuana as teenagers. So that's an example. We have a similar approach uh, to reducing and promoting healthy weight. We have a healthy eating and active living working group. Um, there's also the Upper Valley Hunger Council, which is really working more on the question of access to food, um, because we do have people who suffer from food insecurity in our region. Um, and there are some of the strategies that we're working toward. 
We are working on improving oral health care. Um, Alice Peck Day Memorial Hospital does a wonderful job with a uh, school-based oral health uh, program that provides um, some cleaning and screening and fluoride varnish for kids in many of the, the elementary schools. We want to expand that even further. Uh, and also, when we go to look for places to refer kids who really need dental care immediately, um, we need to expand the list of dentists who are willing to see these kids because it's, um, it's really tough, particularly if they have to be on Medicaid in New Hampshire. Um, most dentists won't touch them. We're also working on creating a community-based um, kind of clinic for adults. So we get the senior center in Canaan, have a dental hygienist, she can do a quick brush clean and some education, and if she sees issues, she can refer somebody to a dentist for further care. These are ways that we are trying to push the envelope a little bit on the question of oral health care. <coughs> Emergency preparedness, I'll let you go into that later. Um, supporting older adults is probably one of our more complicated issues because there are so many people in the Upper Valley who are working on this in a variety of ways, and what we're really trying to do is knit these together so that we have a better understanding of what's being done and what needs to get done. And I'll, um, this picture, I think, begin to show why there's so much going on. Um, we have an aging working group that's still trying to figure out exactly what role it's going to play in all of this, but then there's the, the communities Many of our communities have volunteer groups that are trying to support older adults. We have an elder care forum of various providers that gets together on a monthly basis to talk about this, but these don't necessarily talk to each other. And this is comprised of community nurses, parish nurses, as well as just the pure volunteers. And so it's, it's still really hard to get folks in a room to say, what, what really do we need to do? Um, and so that's one of the goals for the next year, is to bring all those folks together. So the Public Health Council, I, I talk about members or partners. Anybody can come and be a partner. It's really come to our meetings. We have meetings about eight times a year. And there are working groups, maybe every month to six weeks, get together and try to, again, come down. What are the strategies? Who's going to do what? How are we going to get this stuff moving forward? People are welcome to join any of those working groups that are of interest. And um, I'm happy to answer any questions that you have about what we've been doing. I was going to say, maybe you can just mention, I mean, this summer I thought uh, the Public Health Council did a great job with one of the issues in mm -hmm. terms of the, the Heat and Older Adult Project. And mm -hmm. The, the, the way that you had so many people work on that, bring it together and get that get the information and stuff out so quickly, I thought it was just a tremendous example of what having all these partners associated with one another can do. Maybe you could just tell folks a little bit about what went on there real quick. Sure, sure. And I love talking about heat in older adults when it's like really <laughs> cold outside. Um, oh, a couple of years ago now, we did receive funding from the state of New Hampshire to develop a climate adaptation plan for the region. And the goal there was, um, and it was a health, climate and health adaptation plan. So what did we see in terms of potential health impacts to our region from 
the climate change that we were seeing. And you had, we had to go through a process of figuring out what the priorities were for our region, what we were concerned about, what our vulnerabilities were. Um, obviously, issues around flooding uh, were on, up there on the list. However, we decided that West does such a great job with all the emergency preparedness and planning work um, that's already in place that we didn't need to do something very specific uh, on that topic. We talked about vector-borne disease, and while that's definitely an issue, many people are aware of it, and we didn't think the numbers were big enough to take that on. But the one place that people felt we hadn't really, uh, we had vulnerability that we didn't completely understand or know what to do about was this question of older adults and heat stress. Because as we get hotter and hotter days, which are predicted, more, more hot days, um, we're just not acclimated to that kind of weather. Our homes are built to stay warm in the winter, not cool in the summer. And older people, where I grew up in Southern Virginia, older people know how to deal with the heat. That's, you just you grow up in that world. Up here, we don't have that. So that was the issue that we took on. What we wanted to do was figure out a way to get information to older adults, particularly those who were isolated and more frail, in a way that was natural to them. So we had to create something that we could sustain, that it wasn't such a big infrastructure for a project, that it could only happen in a very short period of time and then never again. So we reached out to partners. We reached out to um, Grafton County Senior Citizens Council, all of the volunteers that they have, and they are really the Meals on Wheels provider for the region. Um, we reached out to a lot of the community-based volunteer groups to see if anybody was interested. This past summer, we had to do some data collection around the project, and so not everybody wanted to be involved in that level, but um, we've got a, a group of folks down in Plainfield, New Hampshire, that wanted to be a part of it, and also um, Upper Valley Ambulance Service, which operates up in the um, fairly Orford area, wanted to be a part of it. So we developed this toolkit, and the idea is that the toolkit is really not to, again, like this thing, not to just hand off to older adults, but it gives um, basic information for a volunteer or a caregiver to be able to provide information to an older adult, to be able to look at the situation in their home and determine whether or not there might be some vulnerability. You know, the Meals on Wheels driver walks into the house and the house is 100 degrees. Maybe they need a little bit of help figuring out how to stay cool. Um, and we did come up with some materials that they could leave behind with an older adult just to remind them of some, of some very key messages about staying cool and what to do and when, when um, they might be at risk for heat stress or heat stroke. Um, we just actually had a follow-up meeting with the folks that had worked with us today to figure out what worked and what didn't work because we will be doing that again next summer. But it was a really cool opportunity to, to bring people together and use the natural net networks that are already out there in our communities and figure out how we can navigate those for other issues in the future. Do you think the, the services for the uh, elderly or anything should be based on town or on the region? Should each town have its own plan? Or, uh... <coughs> That's a, that's a great question. It's a little bit of a tricky question. Uh, <clears throat> I think the degree to which we can have volunteers in towns that can support their neighbors 
uh, we ought to support that and, and grow it as best we can. One of the things that's come up recently, though, uh, and, and in a conversation with some of the other volunteer groups, we've, we're playing around with this idea that one of the challenges is, and I know a lot of the volunteer groups and communities would really love, for instance, to have the uh, discharge planners and, and care managers here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock feel confident calling them or referring people to them when they're coming out of the hospital and going home. But they also feel as if, if they ask their volunteers to go through a relatively rigorous training protocol to ensure safety and understanding about confidentiality and other things, that they're going to lose their volunteers. So we're, we're sort of getting ready to feed back to people the idea of you kind of have to choose which you want to be. Because if you really just want to be a bunch of caring neighbors, then you can't expect the system to necessarily look to you as a viable partner. Because you're putting them at risk then. Um, if, if they say, well, you should contact Susan because she coordinates local volunteer drivers and they can help get you to the pharmacy. But it turns out they don't do background checks, they don't check insurance, they don't do any of that stuff. Well, that, that's going to put the, the discharge planner in, in a tough spot. So kind of have to choose. Do you want to be a player yeah. in the bigger system or do you just kind of want to operate at the local level and, and help your friends? And as we sort through those kinds of questions, I think we'll get a better sense of what belongs at a community level, at a town level, and what really needs to be done in a slightly more formal way and maybe more regionally. But I also, I don't want to take anything away from that local capability, that, that feeling on the part of a town. I think we've, in the last few decades, we've really taken away a lot of this sense of people help each other and people look out for their neighbors and we've gotten too professionalized. So I, I do want us to be trying to find that balance. <clears throat> just kind of follow up on that. I, I think you're absolutely right. They're both really important entities. It's just very tricky to integrate the two of them together is where I think the challenge uh, comes. And so to build on both sides of that, I think is really important. Um, but I'm not quite sure, as you were saying, how well you can link them together because of some of the slightly different, um, you know, the entities and the liabilities and some of the other types of things that go along with those. Anything else? Okay. Well, thank you all very much for giving me the opportunity to talk with you. And I hope that uh, if you have any other questions about the work that we're doing or why we're doing what we're doing, please feel free to contact me at any time. Thank you very much, Alex. Well, so, so, now, is there a wrap-up you need to do for Alex and side of things? No, but we're good. We have everyone's okay. email, so don't get the email for the email. All right. Well, Alex, thank you very much for, for, for coming and talking a little bit. Um, and one of the things that, you know, for those, for those of you who aren't as familiar with DMRC, uh, part of what we do, although Medical Reserve Corps sounds medical, but what we do is a very broad array of events and supportive 
activities within the community. And one of the things that we like to do whenever possible is to provide education on various types of things within the community and ways that people can get involved, not just with our organization, but in some of the other many important organizations that are out there. So the Public Health Council is an excellent example of that. Um, again, just for, those, for some of you who aren't as familiar with the MRC, the Medical Reserve Corps uh, is probably one of the country's best kept secrets. There's over a thousand units and 200,000 volunteers across the country. There are units in America, Samoa, and uh, in, in the U.S. Marshall Islands. They're in all states and all U.S. territories. Like many things, they grew out of 9-11 and the issues that happened with you had paramedics and nurses and physicians streaming over from Connecticut and New Jersey to, to come and help out. But there was no way to validate that these people were really who they said they were. Are they really a, a licensed RN? Are they really an EMT? There wasn't a great way to be able to do that. So the idea of starting this medical reserve corps came out of that. But nationally, less than 50% of the members of Medical Reserve Corps are actually clinically oriented or first responder oriented. And that's because if you think about it, anytime you're trying to mount even any kind of uh, medical mission, it takes far more non-medical people to make that happen. So if you're doing setting up a, 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 a what we call a pod, a point of distribution, so a mass prophylaxis scenario, you need people directing in the parking lot. You need people doing registration. You need people doing resupply. You need people doing educational work. So there's all sorts of things that go on. So that's why uh, the Medical Reserve Corps is comprised of more non-medical people than medical. So the name scares some people off. But I wanted to talk, uh, take, we're just going to take about 15 minutes and if you're hungry and need a snack or get a glass of cider or something, please, please do that. But we did kind of change our, uh, our order around a little bit here. But um, so I wanted to talk about a little bit about some of what we did last year as, as a unit. So the Upper Valley Medical Reserve Corps, we're unique in that we're one of only three or four units in the country that is bi-state, meaning our coverage district goes across state boundaries. Now you can be asked by a neighboring state, to provide assistance um, for anyone, but our territory does cover the Upper Valley of New Hampshire as well as the LEPC, Local Emergency Planning uh, Commission districts, uh, both 13 um, and 4 in New York, excuse me, in, in Vermont. We don't go quite all the way to New York, but uh, so there's a lot of territory, but so we're kind of unique that way. But as I said, we like to present topics of interest. Last February, we were fortunate enough to have uh, Dr. Geiling uh, from the VA Medical Center give us a talk. He was actually at Walter Reed Medical Center um, on 9-11. He was working there, and he was part of the team that set up the medical command at the Pentagon after the, uh, after the plane crashed into it. And it was very interesting in that they then had... Uh, clinics going there for quite a number of weeks afterwards, but uh, one of the people he treated in the clinic a few days afterwards was complaining of shoulder pain. He said, okay, well, were you here the day of the, uh, the, the, day of the crash? He said, it was. He said, okay, were you thrown to the ground? Was there debris that hit you? He said, no, I'm, I'm with the media corps, and I had a, uh, I had a uh, camcorder on my shoulder for uh, 12 and a half hours that day. <laughs> And he said, wow, you must have, he said, oh yeah, but not much was done with it, not a lot was released. 
he provided Dr. Guiling with a whole lot of unseen footage of the medical response at the uh, at, at the Pentagon that day. And so Dr. Guiling was uh, was kind enough to come in and just talk about sort of how the medical response was organized. But some of the footage he had was phenomenal. So really, really interesting uh, guest speaker that we uh, that, that that we had um, back uh, last year uh, on on that. So. Um, Every year we do, again, as part of the public education stuff, we, uh, we, we do uh, an event at the Home Life Expo where, it, again, it's public information. We talked about uh, uh, emergency preparedness kits, family planning. We actually um, can't tell very well from that, but a lot of uh, information on um, phone apps that are all free. It was kind of neat that there were three different, uh, three different people who uh, had smartphones, but really where they were all uh, older, uh, older adults, but really weren't sure about this whole app thing. So I actually downloaded some things for them. For instance, New Hampshire Alerts, which is a great thing because it'll, no matter where you are in the country, they, it'll tell you about emergencies or potential uh, uh, events that are going on in that area. So if you've got this on your phone, even though it's called New Hampshire Alerts, I was in Kansas City and got tornado warnings for the local area. But so it was kind of neat. We were able to, uh, I was able to download some things for some folks and uh, put them on their phones. Um, great then. We were asked by the state of Vermont, um, down in Pease Air Force Base, you heard about the, um, the PFOA water contamination. This is a big deal going on in Vermont too. So it was back, um, back in, I think it was the end of April, where the state of Vermont had to do a number of blood draw clinics. And so they had one that was going on in Bennington. Uh, there were some areas uh, around there that were particularly hard hit, and they had a lot of folks there. They ran clinics for a couple of weeks. So they asked the Medical Reserve Corps to assist the Department of Health in doing that. Now, this is actually way outside of our, our, our what is our typical coverage district, but we had, uh, we had half a dozen members, actually seven members, that um, volunteered to go there. It was about a two-plus-hour drive to go and help out with these uh, with these clinics. Um, interestingly enough, our unit here provided more individual uh, medical volunteers than any of the Vermont units, even the, the local one there. So we're pretty proud of uh, the way our members uh, came up to the plate and, uh, and delivered there. So that's actually just a shot of where they uh, they did the uh, did the clinic. If I would hit the right buttons, a couple of volunteers there, and there's the back of a very handsome gentleman, and may or may not be in this room, but that's kind of the money shop with the Upper Valley MRC. But it was really nice to be able to have so many volunteers go down there and perform um, what was a really important service in helping out uh, the Vermont Department of Health and, and, and other groups as well. Uh, the Proudy is an, is an event that we support every year, and it was absolutely glorious weather. Oh no, that was last, that was 2015. That's what it looked like. It was terrible weather this year. It was the thing we gave out more uh, nitrile gloves than anything else at this year's event, and that was because people were coming in. It was misting. It was about 38 degrees. People were literally stopping their bikes and like slowly working their hands off the handlebars because their hands were getting so cold. So we gave we went through boxes. Of, of nitrile gloves, so people could put them underneath their uh, their riding gloves, just to keep that breeze off their hands, and it it, it absolutely adds a lot of uh, a lot of warmth just by doing that. We did have one uh, we we did have one fairly hypothermic person that came in. They were actually into the shivering stage 
by the time we got them. So we got them into an ambulance and got them off. But we had, uh, but uh, supporting the Proudy is just such an important, uh, an important thing that goes on every year. I mean, they, they earned about $3 million again this year and just, you know, phenomenal, a phenomenal event. Um, the Vermont 100 is another one of the, uh, one of the events that we uh, help out. And that's the, uh, the 100-mile uh, running event um, that goes on in Vermont. It's really a nationally known event. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, I knew for a long time that monies that were raised through this help support programs of uh, the Vermont Adaptive uh, Ski and Sports Pro, uh, Group. What I didn't realize until very recently, they were actually the ones who started it. They were looking for ways to help support their programming and all. They came up with this, and now this has become a nationally known event. So really interesting. But again, we, uh, we, uh, that, that's one of the other events that we support uh, every year. And as I say, again, we've got medical and non-medical volunteers. And in fact, with the uh, blood draw clinics, we had RNs and stuff with us that went there, but they weren't even functioning in a clinical role. They needed people to be doing education, be setting up follow-up appointments, doing all sorts of other things. So they understood that it was uh, people from the Department of Health that were doing all the actual blood draws. But again, we have people even with that clinical background that just said, you know, this is an important thing. We're going to stand up and uh, help, uh, help us to support this. Uh, Paddle Power is just an amazing event from, um, that uh, the West Central Behavioral Health uh, puts on every year to support their primarily their emergency services program and suicide prevention uh, programs. So uh, once again, uh, this year we're out there uh, supporting that two-day event, uh, paddling on that Connecticut. It's kind of fun. Um, we're out there on rescue boats. So we're out there with some of the local fire departments and uh, some of the other groups that, uh, that, that are helping to support that event. So again, it's this coalition thing like Alice was talking about. It's the MRC is not going to go out and um, be the primary medical care provider in an area, but we're, we're going to go in. We're going to go in and augment what's already going on, and we're going to go in and support, or you know, we'll work with the Red Cross if there's shelter, if they're setting up shelters and they need assistance not only with setup, but then if you need to be doing um, surveillance, if you're running shelters for a long time, a lot of a uh, lot of uh, you know, concerns about health issues and, and, and whatnot can crop up. So uh, we're we're there to support other groups, but when we can you know step in and help some of these groups that are just out there doing phenomenal community work and support their events, uh, it's it's really just a great way to spend uh, spend some time. This year too, we were we were part of two different. Um, large statewide exercises. So um, Vigilant Guard was a statewide exercise that the state of Vermont ran. And they had, I think, plagues and locusts and gluttony and just about everything that could go wrong, going wrong as part of that. But it also included setting up, again, those pods that I mentioned, points of distribution. So in the event that there's need for mass prophylaxis, the, there's, um, the pods are set up and that's how that is handled throughout the country. But so the Medical Reserve Corps is counted on to be a key support for these, uh, for these pods. Um, so we had a number of folks that were, uh, that were uh, helping us uh, with that exercise. Um, we did the same thing in New Hampshire about a week and a half later, which made it a real challenge. But this is actually in Lebanon High School, which is our primary pod down in this area. And again, that was set up and we, were, we just redesigned the configuration and the, throw, the throughput. So it was a great opportunity to really kind of validate that and see what went on there and um, 
that worked really well. I mean, with these exercises, we actually had the state national guard delivering. They were mock assets, but but uh, boxes that had uh, that that, that had um, uh, mock bottles there of, of uh, Cipro and Doxy and uh, you know certain medications. We had to inventory them and go through storage and deal with security and stuff. But in any event, again, Medical Reserve Corps is is a key part of making those facilities run, and we were it was nice to be able to have. Uh, those exercises happen in both states uh, this summer that we were able to support and learn a lot. Um, I've had a few uh, few uh, folks that have helped me out with some of my flu clinics. In fact, uh, Rowan over there is known as the flu fairy down in Plainfield, but every year she helps. We do one of the one of the projects that I do is I run uh, vaccination clinics in uh, the school systems. That one's only on the uh, only on the New Hampshire side of the river. But uh, so this year, once again, the Upper Valley. Even though we're a much smaller region when we look at population and all, we still did more more actual vaccines than any other <coughs> other twelve regions in the state, um, and we had all all of our public schools participating, and they don't have that in all the regions. So, as you can see, there's a lot of stuff that went on this year, and there's a lot of volunteers who just made this all happen. Did phenomenal work. In addition to um, we've got uh, three of our board members, uh, Dr. Lala, uh, Wendy, and Alice are our board members as well. And you know what it takes to make all that happen. It's 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 a lot of work, but it's really it's meaningful work and it's very fulfilling work. So um, you know we're always hoping to get more folks involved, uh, both uh, as I say, both with clinical skills as well as just folks who want to help their communities because there's some great stuff going on. So that's a little bit about what we did last year. Um, coming up, we've got, you know, we, we, did, we, we do hold general meetings every other month and started to nail down some of the, uh, some of the focuses of some of those meetings. Um, on February 8th, we will be doing a psychological first aid training. We did this uh, oh, about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> excuse me. And we pushed these out to all sorts of other groups too. We had, I think, 48 people at that training. We, we had some people come down from Grand Isle Red Cross in Vermont. That was a longer drive to get down here than the course itself was presented for. So, you know, but it was a, it was a good opportunity for them. Um, but the psychological first aid training is so important because even if we're dealing with a shelter situation or something like that, you might have Mrs. Smith there who doesn't even like to leave her home. Now all of a sudden she's in a gymnasium with 250 other people. And to be able to, we aren't training people to be clinicians and deal with significant, but what we want people to understand is to recognize issues, maybe to learn a few skills about de-escalation if there's an anxiety component that's building, and to be able to then refer people or, or get them. We've got a uh, psych first aid training coming up. Um, we will make sure that we get that information out to everybody with um, some more specifics. April 12th. Um, we've got a meeting coming up, and I was just able to uh, to confirm this. Um, Dr. David Hirsch is actually a physician, uh, emergency medicine physician at Concord Hospital now. He had previously been at, I believe it was Beth Israel, Beth Israel, might have been MGH, but I think it was Beth Israel. In any event, he was on the ground and running the uh, the uh, working the, one of the people running the medical operations at the Boston Marathon, and they've got a very extensive uh, medical system that they set up for that every year, just because they you know as a result of uh, you know running the darn thing, they have you know people have issues, 
But he was there um, when the, the um, bombing took place. And I've seen him give this presentation. It's a phenomenal presentation. And so he's kind enough, and he's going to be joining us uh, in, uh, in April uh, to present that. So again, we'll let folks know about that. We've got, uh, you know, again, we've got those uh, primary uh, primary uh, groups that we support in terms of the Proudy and the Vermont 100 and Paddle Power. So we've got a number of things on the docket already. We're working to identify more and uh, confirm some more things. But um, I think we did a lot of amazing things in uh, 2016, 2017. We've got uh, some really interesting things coming up. And so that I'm, I'm hoping that both as members and prospective members or just folks who are interested in finding out some more that uh, you'll, uh, you'll uh, you know, contact me and we can talk about uh, getting you involved and how to, uh, how to maybe uh, uh, work, uh, work with you to uh, identify folks that maybe want to come out and help. So um, I really appreciate folks coming out. If you have any questions about the MRC or some of the things we've got coming up or just how to get involved, um, I'm more than happy to answer any questions you have. We also still have, uh, we still have some munchies back there, including some truffles, which I've like kind of locking my eyeballs on there. But uh, feel free to hang around and eat some more and chat with people and ask questions. Um, but I really appreciate you all coming out. Um, it was a fairly small, yet we'll say intimate group. So uh, thank you for that. And any questions, uh, please, uh, please ask. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you didn't mention in there all the community work you did, you do uh, in setting up uh, for people for, um, we did the special needs one. That's right. Yeah. So that's uh, for uh, home health kids. I mean, home. Do you want uh, yeah, so preferred yeah. and, and, and thanks for bringing that up. I, I do try to do a lot of just public education stuff. And so actually, uh, Brett is involved with the uh, Spark Community Center. And uh, we were there and we did, gave a presentation there. I worked with some Weeblos and one of the, uh, and one of the Grantham troops, uh, the scouting troops. And we've done lots of presentations about, uh, about uh, and, and with Ryan down at, uh, in Plainfield, uh, a little more than a month ago, we uh, presented to a group down there about uh, uh, emergency preparedness kits and uh, family emergency plans and things. So, yeah, we, you know, we've got, we had a lot going on. We're, so, you know, we're hoping that uh, you'll continue to be a part or choose to be a part. And, you know, we'll, uh, we'll let you know uh, about what we have coming up. So, thank you all.